After the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers to his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if it not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet and we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsuda, for the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repeated long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask that your Holy Spirit, we invite your Holy Spirit to come speak to us and and to impart to us the wisdom that your word has for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the last chapter, in uh, chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12. You could read about that. And then in this chapter, chapter 10, he sends out 72. And verse 1 says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, the 72 weren't sent out because of some supply and demand thing or some economics thing or a numbers thing. Jesus wasn't uh, staffing because the needs of the ministry were great or anything like that. Actually, the harvest is much larger than actually the 72 that they're sending out. Verse 2 tells us, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So there are too few laborers. And so not only are the laborers few, we're going to read in verse 4 here that they're weak. But before, oh, I mean verse 3, sorry about that. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Weak. Which is surprising to me, and it might be surprising to some of you as well, because who sends out people to work without enough workers? And then who sends out people to work who are weaklings? I mean, what good leader would do such a thing? Send, send out workers that aren't, as to, to, aren't enough. Send out workers that are weak. Jesus does this. And so we see examples of this all over the Bible, like Gideon, like David. Um, there, there are a ton of others. There, but there's an important lesson to be learned here. And the lesson is that we are actually quite powerless without God. Powerless without God. And so you look at the feeding of the 5,000 in the previous chapter, chapter 9, starting in verse 12. And so this day began to wear away, and the 12 came to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, you know, it's it's about time to send these guys out to find some food and some lodging, because we're nowhere close to Costco. And Trader Joe's is at least a few hours away. We need to send them away. They, They need to go find some food. And Jesus says, you guys feed them. And so John, you'll be Trader Joe, and... Peter, you'll be traitor Peter, and Andrew, you'll be traitor Andrew, and Judas, you'll be traitor Judas. Um, And so little did the disciples know how prophetic Jesus would be with traitor Judas. But anyway, so Jesus tells them to feed the 5,000, and these guys tell Jesus, "All, all all we got is this kid's happy meal. That's it. 
That's, that's all we got. And so they say another interesting in verse 13. He says, or they say, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. Now, I'm not sure if these guys were being smart Alex or not, or what their attitude was like, or what their tone was like to Jesus. But if you look back to verse 3, it says, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. So I, I kind of wonder if these guys were just kind of being smart Alex with Jesus. Well, if you let us bring stuff, we probably have stuff to give. But Jesus told them to, you know, travel light. And that's what we're going to do now. So you told us to travel light. Now we have nothing. So we could have bought some food. It didn't matter, right? I mean, it was 12 guys for 5,000 people. It really wouldn't matter how much money that they had. They couldn't buy that much food. So there's this huge need. There's no Costco. There's just Trader Judas and the kids' Happy Meal. Now what? Jesus, what? Now what? So Jesus tells them, hey, organize these people into groups. And Jesus looks to heaven. He gives this blessing over them. He starts distributing the Happy Meal. And then verse 17 tells us that they all ate and they were satisfied. So what we have here is a, a huge challenge. Weak resources, weak people to face all of this challenge. But where Jesus is, that's where He's strong. That's where He's victorious. That's where God is strong. That's where God's victorious. And that just happened in the last chapter, chapter 9. And now we're here, chapter 10. Jesus sends out 72. So they, they were sent by the Lord ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He was Himself about to go. So Jesus sent them as representatives of Himself, representing Him. And you know that worship song, One Thing, by Charlie Hall? And, and they have this line in there, all of life comes down to just one thing, and that's to know you, O Jesus, and to make you known. And, and that's a pretty accurate picture of the 72 here. They knew Jesus, and now they knew they had to make Him known. And it wasn't about a religion. It wasn't about joining our church. It was about meeting someone, meeting Jesus, having a relationship with Him, having a connection with God, and wanting to share the living God with someone else. Not a religion. Not a religious activity. Not a religious institution. It wasn't a religious thing. It was a relationship with the living God. So Jesus, who made Himself known to the 72, and then to share Himself with others, that was the purpose of the 72. This is our purpose as well. right? That, that we get to know Jesus ourselves, and then as we get to know Jesus, we make Him known to others. That's our purpose. That, that's what we're here to do. But the odds are against us, just as they were for the 72. Right? These guys, like us, they're not just outnumbered. These guys are weak. Lambs in the midst of wolves. I don't know about you, but for me, that seems a little pretty messed That seems messed up. Right? Like, you're sending me out as a lamb in the midst of wolves. Why are you doing that? Right? Why in the world, God, would you do that? That is messed up. How is a lamb going to win over a wolf? Tell him he's a bad wolf. I, what is he going to do? Right? What's he going to do? So what do lambs do? What, what do lambs do? Do they snarl? Do they growl? Do they, do they bare their teeth? Do they, do they show their hackles? I mean, that's what my dog does. If he doesn't know you, you're coming up. That's all the signs. That he, but, but what does a lamb do? Nothing. Lambs, bah. I don't know what they call that. Bang? Wait, what is Bah? Pleading. Like bleeding. Ooh. Lambs flock. Lambs flock. Why do they flock? Because they're fearful. They are a fearful animal. They flock for protection. The larger the group, the more protected they feel. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Why did Jesus say little flock? Because by nature they fear. That's why they flock. And if it's a little flock, the greater the fear. And there's strength in numbers. So this recognition that it's a little flock, it's, extremely, it's an extremely fearful group in the midst of wolves. Now how is it possible that a lamb won't fear? So you have a big flock, but a good shepherd. 
a good shepherd, the words of a good shepherd, the presence of a good shepherd, which we have a really long history of in the Bible. And it's not like God is just saying, you know, trust me, just go out. But he has this history behind him that shows us that it's legitimate, that that's, this is how he works. Taking a look at the Old Testament, just for one of the stories as an example, let's take a look at Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, we find Moses keeping his father-in-law's flock. And God is going to liberate his people from the Egyptians who have enslaved them. And so who is overseeing this whole enslavement? It's this guy, a pharaoh. He's the mightiest man on the earth at that time. And there's no one who is going to be able to free them from the grips of Pharaoh. This is the most powerful man in the most powerful country with the most powerful army having a grip on these people. So God will go to his people through a shepherd. And he appeared to Moses in this flame of fire um, out of the midst of this bush. And this bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And, and then in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, uh, that, that's where, where that's at. And then in verse 6, it's recorded that Moses hid his face. Moses is a very smart man, hiding his face from a holy God. And then you read on to verses 7 and 8, and it says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up and out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now if I was Moses, if you were Moses, wouldn't you be pretty excited right here? Wouldn't you be pretty so? Yes. God to the rescue. It's about time. What's, what's taken so long? Thank you. And then after that initial excitement, wouldn't you start to think, why is he telling me? Why, 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 why me? And it's like if your boss comes to you with this great idea for this company expansion and he tells you all this stuff and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea, that's a great idea. And no one else is around you in that meeting. Guess who he's going to work through to move the company forward? That's kind of what happened to Moses, right? Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, Come, I will send you, bah, you, anyway, to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses must have been pretty excited initially to hear this news until he realized that he was the only guy God was speaking to. Then he was like, oh, shoot. And then he goes into doubt mode. right? Verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now how many of us are like this? And it's not even Pharaoh that we have to talk about, but on the BART, on our commute, or if we're in a cafe and we're studying, or whatever reason, you know, we're in a park and our kids are playing and there's other people around and you're just kind of fearful, you don't want to talk to anybody about anything. In verse 12, God said, I will be with you. And then he continues to go into doubt mode and verse 13 Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And so this is like many of us who are afraid. We're we're afraid to share about God because we're afraid of that question that we're not going to be able to answer, and we're afraid to be looking like a fool. Like, what, what, what do I say? I don't want to go down that road. But what does God tell Moses in verse 14? I am who I am. Now, a more literal translation of I am who I am is I will be. Which tells us God will be present. He will be with us. So you look back at verse 12. It says, I will be with you. So God is saying, I will be present is what I will be. And God is saying that his reputation, his character, his nature, everything about him, I will be present to be Whatever my people need me to be for them in their circumstances, I will be present is what I will be. That's what he's saying. So we see that it is God who is what we aren't. And we tend to look at our own weaknesses without recognizing that God is with us. 
And that's what, God, that's what Moses did. He saw his own weaknesses. He was, he was a shepherd who, who lived in a tent, who took care of his father-in-law's sheep. And so he, I guess he was a leader of his father-in-law's sheep. It's not even his own sheep. And while on the other side is this powerful man who lives in the huge palace, who has all the resources in the world, who has the most powerful army, and, and he has all that behind him. And, and what do I got? But Pharaoh didn't have God on his side. So Moses continues in this doubt mode, and into chapter 4 of Exodus we go, and in verse 1 he said, They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then you go into verse 10, and he says, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. How many of us can relate to this? Just reason after reason and excuse after excuse and just trying to pull. And they're probably all legitimate. They're probably all true. But what about asking, God, what do you want me to do? And then just doing it. But oftentimes we we need a little bit more than that, don't we? We, we need to know that He's truly behind us, that He's truly equipped us, that He's really there. And, he, and so God doesn't slam him. You see how many times that Moses is coming back and God is kind of reassuring him. And Moses is basically saying, do you know how weak I am? Do you know that I, I have no credibility? But if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has called us to something, who can be against us in that calling? And it's not about Moses being this extraordinary man. It's about God being who He is. Now, we don't have time to go through all the stories where God used people who seemed weak throughout the Bible. We'd be here for years. But we talked about Moses in the Old Testament. Let's take a story in the New Testament. Let's look in the Gospels at a guy named Jesus. Jesus, who was born an illegitimate child in a cave to this mother of ill repute. Right? This, is, this is the Savior of the world. Whom we, this is why we're all here. This is who we are worshiping. This is the Savior of the world. Who's, this, who's the atoning sacrifice of sin, right? Jesus. And how does He come to us? How does Jesus come to us? He's born in this podunk town called Bethlehem in this insignificant country that is held captive under Roman rule. This is how the Savior of the world arrives to us. And He comes to us with this really bad reputation and this really low status. His family is not thought of highly at all and isn't even known by the outsiders of that town unless, unless the rumors of them are preceding them. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, some said, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? In John chapter 6, verse 42, some said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Those aren't compliments. Those are kind of digs as to like, you know who this guy is? Right? He, he was educated in the worst rabbinical school in Judea, which was in Galilee. And so that's why the crowd said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Making people, making sure that they know like this is where this guy's pedigree is from. This is his resume. That's why some question in John chapter 7, verse 41, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And why in John chapter 7, verse 52, they said, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Go make sure. There's no way. See, those weren't compliments. And toward the end of the Gospels, we find this severely beaten Jesus at the point of disfigurement. And He's hanging on a cross, and it's stained with blood. And for someone to claim that they were God, that is a pretty pathetic picture of strength. That's more like the epitome of weakness. You, you couldn't even take people over? I mean, they just put you on a cross. They beat you to a pulp. That, that, that's weakness in most people's eyes. And we wouldn't think that the Savior of the world would come like that. We would think, wouldn't they come in victorious? They would just triumphantly march through the city with, with this mighty army in tow. And instead of 
beaten, bloodied, and, and hanging there on the cross? I mean, wouldn't he fight and show that he's a conqueror, whatever was in front of him? So what do we make of this as Christians, this picture of the cross of a bloodied Savior hanging on a cross, which appears weak, which seems weak? Well, for us, he rose. He rose, just as he said he would. And, and, and he conquered death. And he's sitting on his throne where he alone is judge of who is righteous and who is not. And it's not because of what people have done, but it's because of what he did on the cross. And how does the story continue with us? And, and, and what looks like weakness, being sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves, as followers of Jesus, we're all clothed in weakness like lambs in the midst of wolves. How does that make you feel? Because let's be honest, we're weak. Right? We're so weak individually, we're weak as a church. We couldn't do anything without Jesus as our shepherd. And you look at the people around you, don't they look weak? Look, Lord, look. Because hospitals are for the sick, just like churches are for sinners. That's why you're here, I hope. Right? You, you wouldn't go to the hospital if you weren't sick. So, so we're a church acknowledging that we're sinners, that we, need, that we need a Savior. And you know when you're a good candidate to be used by God when you acknowledge that you're weak. Right? You, you know when you're a good candidate to be used by God when you know that you can't do it by yourself. And if something happens, it's beyond you. It's outside of you. It's through God. God had to have done it because He's our strength. So let's show God how mighty He really is by realizing our own weaknesses and just kind of going about our business and let Him do what He does. And we fail to be like Jesus when we try to prove how strong we are, when we try to prove how influential we are, when we try to prove how important we are and how smart we are. We fail to be like Jesus. And it's no wonder why we find churches, or even ourselves, ineffective. We're just doing things out of our own flesh. We're just doing things out of our own might. Because it's not in God's plan to win the world over in Jesus' name by showing how awesome we are. That's not the point. right? It's quite the opposite. It's to let the truth to be shown that we are weak and how awesome God is. Paul understood this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, he wrote, For when I am weak, then I am strong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, he wrote, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. How many of us do this? Don't we tend to talk about our strengths? When you apply for a job and you work on your resume, what do you put on there? What you've accomplished, how well you... How many of you put how bad you did? Well, I reported for work late, like six times last year. And, um, you know, I, I take longer lunch breaks than I should. And um, my coffee break is longer than I should. Like, well, how many of you do that? How many of you, are, you know, show your weaknesses? You, you always put, I, uh, I, 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 I did this work and I increased revenue by 10%. Or, you, you know, you put down stuff that makes you look good. You don't put the stuff that makes you look bad. Right? We, we, do this, we do this in our interview too. We highlight our strengths when, when people interview us for the job or whatever. We like, to, we like to talk about ourselves. Yeah, that paper I wrote. Yeah, you know, I worked with so-and-so and I did this and I did that. And we do all this kind of stuff. Physically, we like to do this too, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm running that race. And uh, yeah, I, I, I ran that. And I, I did it in this time. Yeah, and I did this and I did that. It's, it's just how many of us are, right? And I've done this too, right? And, and you do it too. You're like, yeah, I've done that, I've done this, and I have this, and I have that, and I've been there, and you, you, all this stuff. Be careful. Be careful about boasting in your strengths. It's not that those things aren't interesting. It's not that those things aren't relevant. Let's just not get up get all caught up in how the world works in contrast to how the kingdom of God works. Right? God doesn't tend to look for the exceptional person at the onset. 
You know, later on you look at them and you're like, whoa, they were great. But start off when they started. At the very beginning. Usually, not so good. Usually God works through us through those weaknesses and then He makes us exceptional people. But the exceptional person is not who God tends to start out with. I mean, just look at the Bible. It's, it's very rare that that happens. An interesting thing about the 72 in Luke chapter 10. Do we know any of their names? Do we have any record of who they were? And so often we want the recognition of man, don't we? We, we want to be known, we, we, want to, we want to be the exception, we want to be the extraordinary in the eyes of man, but can you give me a single name out of the 72 that were sent? Just one. I'm guessing that at least one of them is named John. That's my guess. I think my guesses are pretty good. But the thing is that we are exceptional, and we are extraordinary, but it's in the eyes of God. Not necessarily in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of God. He, he knows us and He cares for us so deeply. He doesn't just brush us by, say, hi, how are you doing, and go away. He, he's that embrace when He sees you. He's that, I haven't seen you for so long. I love you. I deeply care for you. But often, we're guilty of rejecting that love and placing those affections elsewhere rather than reciprocating them to God. That we want to look for them elsewhere or do other things. And looking to be exceptional in the eyes of man rather than realizing we're already exceptional in the eyes of God. How many of us are guilty of placing more importance on worldly things than godly things? What does our prayer life look like? Are we praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest? Or have we gotten too comfortable? Have things, even good things, become our idol? Like family. Family is a really good thing. I love my family. But is it preventing you from being like one of the 72? If you're called by God to, to, to go to your job and to serve as a missionary in your job, great. Stay there. Do the best you can there. But if you're at your job because it's comfortable, it's stable, it's good paying, and at the same time you're hearing God's voice telling you, not here, go. What's holding you back? Why are you not going? So here we have 72 no-names whom God has called to go. 72 who are to depend completely on God and who are to become more and more aware of their weaknesses so that God's strength can be more realized. So dependence on God, that's the goal. And if that is the goal, then weakness is actually an awesome advantage to have. You can't have it without it. You can't depend on God without being weak. You depend on yourself. And so this thing, this is kind of the thing that the world cringes at. They start saying things like, well, you, God is a crutch. Don't rely, you can't rely on that. That thing's a crutch. What they fail to realize is that they're broken. If you are broken, which we all are, we're all sinners, isn't the crutch good? And if you are weak, don't you need some help? And you don't realize that unless you realize you're weak that you need help. So dependence on God is totally contrary to the world because the world wants to feel that they are independent, that they're strong, that they're self-sufficient, when they really aren't. So God proves how much we, He's really needed by taking the weakest of people and through Him, He does extraordinary things through them. And He doesn't need exceptional people. There are a few, right? There's like a Samuel. He's an exceptional person from the get-go. But there aren't really that many in the Bible. I mean, the, the, the percentages are pretty drastic. And too often we look at this facade of, of the outer, of the exterior, when God looks at the heart, and we get caught up in how things look and not how things really are. And when we get caught up in thinking like the world, God, God lets us operate like that. He, go ahead. But may we lean on and depend on God in our weakness 
How much time do we spend doing things for Oakland rather than praying for Oakland? We are guilty of this as a church. Seriously. We do so much. And we have a monthly prayer walk. And we have a weekly prayer. But in comparison to what we do for Oakland, it's pretty weak. I wonder what would happen if we inverted that. How much do we look at ourselves as capable of doing mighty things for our community and, and looking at our strengths rather than acknowledging we are really weak and relying on the Lord to work using us? And so are we more proud of the worldly things our church has accomplished more than the spiritual things? And I'm speaking to myself as a pastor of this church because a lot of times we see a lot of the worldly accolades and we get a lot of things like, oh, you're making inroads to the community and you're doing all this and you're serving all these people. But what about spiritually? How many people have been saved in our community? That hurts me. Jesus told them to go in verse 3. He told them what they needed to know and then He sent them out. He sent them out to dangerous places as weak people. But they followed, and Jesus gave them more directions in the following verses. Let's start in verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Very similar to his instructions in chapter 9. Now let's first take a look at what they weren't supposed to take. A money bag, a knapsack, and sandals. Now, what's the background to this? The background is that there's a huge harvest out there. The laborers are few. And it's really dangerous that they're being sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. It's dangerous. This is, that's the background. So what is this text telling us? That we shouldn't take a money bag, knapsack, sandals. What, what does that mean with that as the context? It's telling us that things are no longer the same. Right? Things are dangerous and there's a lot of work to be done. And we have to prepare ourselves accordingly. That we can't be preoccupied or distracted with things from that objective, right? That objective which is to follow Jesus and to make Jesus known. So don't get distracted with things like purses and backpacks and shoes and stuff. Right? Meaning, travel light. Travel simply, travel light. Don't get bogged down with things that, that you're immobile, you, you can't move. Don't leverage yourself so much that you have no mobility. And you know this as a traveler, don't you? Right? When, when Katie lived in Europe, um, I, I traveled there to visit her quite often. All I had was a backpack. And, and it was easy to travel light because my main objective was to be with her. That, that was my objective. So I didn't want to get bogged down with checking in luggage and going to baggage claim and, and worrying if my luggage got lost and all those kind of things. All I wanted to do, do was get on the plane Get off the plane. That's all I wanted to do. Very different now. I have three kids. And so when we travel with three kids, we still travel light in comparison. I mean, each one of them has their own little backpack thing, and, and that's all they have. I mean, we, we do travel pretty light. But, but the law is against us. I have to bring three car seats. Unbelievable. I would be able to travel so light if not for that. But... But when it was just me, I could just bring one pair of jeans and it was the ones I was wearing and it would last me however long I was there, right? And I'd bring one pair of shoes and in my backpack was like my Bible and a toothbrush and not much more. That's it. Really simple. Not very many choices for me to make. My objective is to see Katie. The other choices, eh, doesn't really matter. Wear the clothes I had or don't. Brush my teeth or don't. Study the Bible or don't. It's like really simple. But some people think that that's not enough freedom, right? They, that there's this, oh, that's such little selection. You know, just that, that's it? That's all you're wearing? And what about having different types of jeans and, and shoes and, and shirts and pants and hats and jackets? And, and they pack all this stuff into their bag later to find that they're not even wearing most of that stuff that they put in the bag. I've been guilty of that. Right, you pack all this stuff, and like, oh, like cold weather, and um, oh, when I go out for a nice dinner, and um, oh, when I go swimming, and uh, all this stuff, right? You pack everything, and you trek this long distance, and you open the stuff, and you get home, and you find that, oh, I don't 
half of my stuff is clean. You didn't even use that stuff. Like you packed twice the amount of clean underwear you needed. So how does this apply to us? You look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the questions to ask ourselves is, what is weighing us down? Different things weigh people down differently. I remember prior to going into the ministry full-time, I was at this job, and I would get made fun of a lot at this job because people here were driving Porsches and uh, Bentleys and Aston Martins and stuff. I had an 81 Volkswagen Rabbit. So, so my portfolio manager would make fun of me all the time. He'd say, like, how are you going to get a girl with that? And, and I, I, I was starting to believe him. I'm like, yeah, he's right. How am I going to do that? But little did he know my 81 Volkswagen Rabbit had a built-in massage thing. Because whenever you start, it went... <laughs> so I was like, that's how I just do it. Every time they come, it's a personal massage. I'm good. And, and then they'd make fun of me because he'd be like, where do you live? Because initially I lived in a really nice place, right? In, in San Francisco, Telegraph Hill. And, and it overlooked the bay. And it was all this stuff. Had maid service and all this kind of stuff. It was really posh and everything. And I got convicted. And I was like, what are you doing? And so I moved to Berkeley. And I lived in this one-bedroom place. And it was terrible. And I had no furniture. And people came over for prayer meetings in my room. And all I had was this area rug. And it was all. And this was the starts of Regen. It was just in this room. And, and then when pe- colleagues from work came over, they'd make fun of me. Like, why do you have an air couch? Like, <laughs> what? And, and all this stuff, right? But always in the back of my mind, the Lord always was telling me, if you leverage yourself financially, you can't go into ministry. If you leverage yourself getting the car that you want, living at the place you want, owning the things that you want, you are not going to make it. So I always lived simply, and I always didn't have anything until I got married. But then I was already in ministry. So things kind of changed at that point. But I remember that so clearly in my head when I was there, and I was so tempted because I wanted to kind of keep up with the Joneses and be cool like all the other guys I was working with. I'm like, how come they get to drive that thing that sounds so loud but then it's fast but mine just sounds loud and it goes really slow and like all this stuff and it's not about what things you can live with but what things you can't live without and I think that if we look at things through that lens what can't I live without rather than I can live with that it'll help shape how we travel light Now let's take a look at further instructions in verse 4. And greet no one on the road. What does that mean? Be a jerk? Just go, oh, don't talk to me. I'm going somewhere. It doesn't mean that you chuck manners and courtesy and politeness out the door. It means that we are focused. We are to stay focused. So Jesus gives us this, this instruction. Travel light, stay focused. Right? It doesn't mean be a jerk, ignore everyone that comes around you. No, I can't talk to you now, I can't talk to you now, I'm right here, forget it. I'm sharing the gospel, but I can't talk to you. It doesn't mean that. Verse 4 is not to be literally translated. Otherwise, don't you dare say hi to anybody, you sinner. Right? So it's, it's not like that. It's not like well, a long-lost friend that you haven't seen in a while and you guys were really close comes by and you're like, no, can't talk to you now. It's not like that. Verse 4 is a figure of speech, as is much of this text here. And the Bible has to be taken in context. Right? So, greet no one on the road is about staying focused. It's, not a, it's about not getting sidetracked and, and to stay on the objective, on the aim of sharing about Jesus. Not to be pulled away to do something else. Right? So, so that there's an urgency, that there's an urgency to this mission, that time is not to be wasted, that it's clearly not an instruction to be impolite or discourteous. That's not the instruction. This is about having a single-minded 
focus and not being preoccupied with, with leisure and comfort and other things that you're always on. You know your mission. You know how this is. Are you, when, when things are urgent, and it's not that you're seeking to be rude or, or, or anything like that, but there's an urgency to get things taken care of. For example, last week, I was meeting someone in the hallway here. And so we're just talking and, and, and chatting and stuff. And, and suddenly I hear my middle daughter cry out. And it's not like my sister pulled my hair cried out. It was more of like a panic, a fear thing. And so I took off. I, knew, I didn't even talk to the lady saying, excuse me or whatever. I, didn't, I, didn't, I just took off. So she was probably mid... I don't even remember what she was saying. She was probably mid-sentence or something. But as soon as I heard that, I was gone. I, I wasn't trying to be impolite or discourteous or anything like that. But I have this innate objective as a father to protect my child. So I heard that and I was gone. That's my urgency. That was my mission. Nothing's going to sidetrack me. I don't care what's happening right here in the hallway at that time. That's what happened in 2 Kings chapter 4. You remember this story? There's this Shunammite boy who died, and so Elisha was sought to help out here. And so in in verse 29 of 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha says to Gehazi, he says, Tie up your garment and take up my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. So it wasn't like Elisha was telling Gehazi to, to be a jerk. And to like ignore everybody. It's just that Gehazi had this mission. He had to fulfill this mission. And that's what's going on with Jesus' commission here in Luke chapter 10. Travel light. Stay focused. Jesus knew that the cross was coming and the days are numbered. So there's this urgency here. And it's similar for us. The days are numbered as to when Jesus is returning. Some believe it's in six days. Spent a lot of money to tell you that too. Interesting though, the Bible in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, and Mark chapter 13, verse 32, it, this, is what it's, this is what it writes. You can open it up there to yourself. It says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even a billboard. Not even the angels of the heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So unless God did the billboard thing, I think it's legit. But otherwise, this is the Father only. Not even the Son. Not even Jesus. And here we have people, oh, in six days, judgment. Interesting. We're to travel light and stay focused. What are we focused on? Right, The same thing Paul was focused on when he wrote Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And even though these instructions of traveling light, staying focused, were for these 72, these principles still apply to us today. And here is the third instruction, verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. So the third instruction is to extend peace. Now, a customary greeting back in this time and back at these parts was shalom, right? Peace. And it, it, is that what Jesus meant? Because we have a similar greeting here in Oakland, too, is, hey, peace. Right? So it's, it's similar. But I don't think it's a greeting towards people. He's not saying that. This is to a house. Right? Peace be to this house. So it's not a greeting. Why House. Let's take a look at verse 6. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So it's not a greeting. It's not that you're just to say like, hey, peace, whatever. So peace on this house. This is more like an article of trade. Right? That, that when peace is offered, it can be accepted or it can be rejected. So a gift of peace is offered, it's extended, but the recipient of that gift has a responsibility to either receive that gift or reject that gift. The recipient has a responsibility to recognize that the kingdom of God is at hand and it's time to choose. Accept that or reject it. Now in Luke chapter 10, the invitation to the kingdom of God is extended. 
Right? So if accepted, peace will be there. Peace will be on that house if accepted. And the gift, you, you can continue giving off that gift. But if it's rejected, you, you extend that peace and it's rejected by that house, then it's rejected. Peace is not there and the gift can still be continued to be given to another house. So it's the peace of the kingdom of God. Jesus has so far given us instructions to travel light, stay focused, extend peace, and then verses 7 and 8. And remain in the house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Be content. That's his next set of instructions. Be content. So you've done all this stuff, right? You've you've done all that God has instructed you to do. You've gone to this house. You've extended peace. They've accepted that peace. You've, You've extended to them. And you notice like it's... It's a terrible place to stay. It's stinky and things are dirty and the food's yucky and drinks and stuff. And No. Camp out. Be content. So while you're all there, don't get all high maintenance, right? Don't, don't, don't freak out that the coffee's from Starbucks and not Blue Bottle. Like, ooh, ooh, poo-poo. Like, you know? I know it's traumatic for some of you. I know. But keep your cool. Just... Drink the Starbucks. You, you, you detox later. And don't ask. Don't start asking. Oh, that's beef. That's is that grass-fed beef? <laughs> or then they serve you strawberries. Is that organic? Come on. Right. Just relax. Be content. Don't don't start comparing to the other seventy either. Like, man, how come? Why why did he get to go over to Lake Merritt? I'm in West Oakland. Like, what's up with that? So so don't start comparing and and doing all this kind of stuff. Just be content. Again, this is not literal. This is not literal. If if it was, then you're to remain in that house and and don't you dare come out of that house to minister to people. You stay in that house and just eat whatever they give you and drink whatever you drink. If that's literal, then that's what you should be doing, right? Don't you come out of that house. But that's, it's not. Right? It's not. It's not. You, you should minister to people. You should come out. So you, do, you don't just stay there drinking your Starbucks and eating hormone antibiotic-laden beef and um, pesticide-full-ridden strawberries and stuff like that. The takeaway is to be content. It's to be content and not to be going around looking for, you know, the grass is greener on the other side or how things can best benefit you and be best for you. And you have a place you're ministering to be content. The Lord has given you an awesome work to, to minister there. Stop looking for like that better thing, that greener pasture. Right? Travel light, stay focused. So prioritize, stay focused, extend peace, be content. Then verse 9. Heal the sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. So heal and preach. So all these instructions Jesus has given us. And all these instructions Jesus is actually doing. This is not like him saying, like, do these things and he's off to the side not doing any of that stuff. He, he's doing everything that he's teaching. So in regards to healing and preaching, this is what he did at the end of Luke chapter 4. Right? In Luke chapter 4 and verse 40, Jesus laid his hands on everyone who was sick with various diseases and healed them. And then in verse 43, he said to the people who wanted to, to, to keep him there and said, oh, stay with us, stay with us. But he said this to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. So everything Jesus instructed the 72 to do, he was already doing himself. And Jesus wanted them to exercise their God-given gifts, even though some of them were really weak, that they had to tell everyone about the kingdom of God. And one way that people will see the kingdom of God is when, when they see dramatic things happen like healing. Again, this is not literal. Right? I, don't, I don't think this is literal like, just like the rest of the instructions are. We can't say like, oh, those things aren't literal and then just say like, oh, healing. That one's literal though. We've got to stay within the text, right? So I don't think this one's literal either. I think this is a bit more broad. That it's not just physically sick. Because you can be sick in a lot of ways. Some of you are mentally sick. So, you know, you know what I mean? 
But sick, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. We have all these different types of sicknesses within us. And so that there are many more sicknesses than just being physically sick that need healing. People need healing in a lot of ways. And for those dramatic types of healings to happen, whether it's reconciliation of families, of of being of sound mind, of breaking addictions, all these type of things. And that preaching the kingdom of God is varied as well. Right? How effective has your preaching been if all you said was, the kingdom of God has come near to you? Period. Because if you're a literalist, that's all you should say. How many people have come to the Lord when you've said that? Right? And if we just took that literally, cited it out verbatim, I don't know how effective that is. I've, I've actually never tried it. Maybe I should. But it says preach. However you can get across the kingdom of God, that's what you say. However you can get that across. However you can get them to understand. So travel light. Stay focused. Extend peace. Be content. Heal and preach. And so with those instructions, a response is now required. Right? Whether to accept or reject. And we know what they were instructed to do when accepted, right? Be content. Camp out at that house. Don't complain about the strawberries, beef, and Starbucks. Just chill out. But if rejected, there's a different set of instructions. Right? Verses 10 and 11. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now the word street here in verse 10 is pretty interesting. The word street here is talking about a broad way. It's not talking about just like a little residential side street, you know, like you share this with this house and and if they come out, then they come out and say, hey, they didn't accept us. This is talking about being in in a, a main artery to the city, to go to the main street and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we, we've talked about this before, but in case you weren't here about the dusting, wiping feet thing, here it is. There was a rabbinical teaching at the time that when, as a good practicing Jew, and you entered into Jew, uh, Gentile land, that you would catch the Gentile cooties. So, so while you were in their lands, you would catch their cooties. So when you come back to Jewish land, you need to wipe those cooties off before you stepped back into Gentile land, or Jewish land. So whenever you got, got into there, you, you were kind of defiled. And so to declare yourself, I'm cleaning myself off from this Gentile stuff, and I'm coming back into Jewish land. So Jesus is telling the 72 to do the same, to make a point, because all these people would understand what that meant. right? To show them symbolically, you guys are far from God. This is something that, you know, we, we were looked at as upon God's people so that when we enter in Gentile land and we come back, we wipe off that defiled stuff. But he's doing this amongst his own people, saying, we're God's people, you're not doing this, and so we're symbolically doing this. It's, it's a demonstration of their own cooties, that you guys are cootied, and we're going to do this. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you probably know the story of Sodom. That it's not a very good place. It's, it, and if you look into it a little bit, you'll, you'll know that sin is associated with that place. And that, that because of the sin of the Sodomites, God judged them. Now the way Sodom was judged was a picture of the judgment to come. It was a sinful place full of rebellion, full of inhospitable people, and no one expects judgment worse than what Sodom experienced. People think like, if you name the most evil cities ever of all time, some people might say Sodom. But that's not so for all the people who reject Jesus. This is kind of scary. Because Sodom was guilty and they were judged, but those who reject Jesus will be judged even more harshly. That the greatest judgment will be on those who are Religious, those who attend church, 
who have listened to the gospel, who know the gospel, but they aren't following Jesus. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. See, Jesus had done some mighty works for Chorazin and Bethsaida, according to verses 13 and 14. And Jesus then brings up these two cities, Tyre and Sidon. What cities are those? Those are pagan cities. Totally pagan cities. Why does he do that? What Jesus is saying is that these two pagan cities will be able to bear judgment more than Chorazin and Bethsaida, two cities where Jesus was there and he blessed them with his presence. Why is that? Well, Chorazin and Bethsaida, they had Jesus with them. Jesus was revealed to them, while Tyre and Sidon, they didn't have that same amount of revelation. Those are pagan cities. So Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, And to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The greater revelation you have, the more responsibility you have. The responsibility is greater to those who have been given more revelation. And it's so dangerous to keep coming here to our church, listening to the gospel, and to ignore it. You're in a worse spot than if you've never even stepped foot in here. I mean, both are bad, right? But rejecting what you've heard is worse. So today, if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today is the day. Don't ignore it any longer. Your judgment is far worse than pagans. Because the more you do, the more you know, the more you're held responsible for. And I guess if in the past you were at a church that didn't talk about the gospel, didn't talk about the kingdom of God, then you're not as culpable because that wasn't shared. But here, you will be. You are. Right? And it's not because we want this church to be a place of judgment, but we want this to be a place to set people free by knowing the truth. John's, John wrote in John chapter 8, verse 32, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then verse 15, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, Capernaum was a place that Jesus hung out in a lot. It's a place that got a lot of Jesus' attention, a place where a lot of Jesus' teachings were from His very lips in that city. Capernaum had the presence of Jesus there a lot. But it wasn't a place that was totally transformed by the presence of Jesus. So in verse 15, Jesus asked them, Will you be exalted to heaven? Nope. You'll be brought down to Hades. Why? Just because Jesus hangs out there a lot. And he performs many miracles there. And he teaches in their synagogue. It doesn't mean that they have this pass on just ignoring a true relationship with Jesus. Right? Knowing about Jesus and really knowing him are two different things. Right? Capernaum may be like a lot of our churches. They're full of good people. Full of good people doing good things. Full of good people doing good things in a really nice community setting but have totally ignored Jesus. It's just kind of more of like a club. Just kind of here to hang out. See, Sodom didn't have very good people in it. Capernaum did. But you see that Capernaum has the harsher judgment. Right? The, the judgment against the lack of morality in Sodom is less than the judgment of the spiritual indifference of Capernaum. So yes, morality is important. Especially in the Christian life. Morality is important. But we see that there is a harsher judgment towards spiritual indifference. So do you see the dangers of being a religious person who's consumed with just kind of living their religious life externally while on the inside it's just an absolute mess? 
How many of us have fooled people here? We have all this beautiful exterior of what we're like as a Christian, but inside, it is messy. It is so dirty. Ignoring the spirituality of what's happening in the heart while, while performing these religious acts so that others can see something else, can see a pious person. That's dangerous. That is a really dangerous thing to do. Your judgment is very harsh. The self-righteous, judgmental, condemning, orthodox person is more revolting to God than an immoral, idolatrous pagan. That's what it's saying. Who did Jesus more seriously rebuke? The Pharisees. Right? Self-righteous, judgmental, condemning, orthodox, religious people. That's what, who he was the most harsh with. Those who always went to church. Those who always did church things. Those who always appeared to do the religious thing and the right thing. Those who always pointed at other people's wrongs because they were doing the wrong thing, but they were doing the right thing. Verse 16, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So we, we might be seriously outnumbered and we might be seriously weak. But Jesus has given us this authority in verse 16 with his message. He has empowered us with the same message from God that Jesus came to preach himself. So do you realize how much authority you have? You have a ton of authority. Look at that in verse 16. The one who hears you, the one who hears you hears me. Jesus is saying, whoever he listens to you is listening to him. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects Jesus, rejects your message, this authority, is rejecting Jesus. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. In rejecting you, they are rejecting God the Father. See the authority that you have? That, that we might be weak, but our message is from God, Almighty God. And, and what are Jesus' instructions? Travel light, stay focused, be content, extend peace, heal, and preach. You don't worry about the judging part. You don't worry about the condemnation part. Right? We, we just go about doing what He instructed us to do. And what we have here is His message of salvation, the authority to deliver that, to, to give that, to be His mouthpiece, His, his missionary. And, and with that authority, we have the ability to offer everlasting life. And it's a matter of life and death. It's, it's a matter of heaven or hell. That's why I, I could sugarcoat this a lot. Just to like say, oh, come back and we, we love you and everything's great and, and just keep hearing this message and you have time and all this stuff. It's all true. That's all true. And I really mean that. But at the same time, there's an urgency. And that every time we preach the gospel message here and you don't accept, your heart has another layer of hardness added to it. And every time we do that, it's another layer of hardness. My heart's kind of broken right now. I, uh, I have a father-in-law who's really sick. And, and so uh, my wife has shared the gospel with him since she's been a teenager. It's been decades. And we've continued to share. I don't know how thick that is. But it's really thick. I can sense it. Whenever I pray for him, whenever I share with him, I can, I can sense it, just spiritually, how thick that glass is. As opposed to someone hearing the gospel for the first time, it's, it's like rice paper. Just poke. But it's really up to them on whether they want to accept it or not. But this one, I'm praying and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sharing. Man, it's like hitting bulletproof glass. That stuff's hard. And I can't sugarcoat that. I, I have to let you know that the more you hear the gospel and you don't accept it, the harder it will be moving forward. That's what the text tells us. And it's true in real life if you just look at people's lives. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth because it sets us free. We thank you for your instructions and even though we are so weak, you've given us the authority to preach such a powerful message to people to have a relationship with you. And how contrary that is to our world. That when we, in the world, when we want to get something done, we want to put our best foot forward and we want to hit it with our strengths and do all this kind of stuff. But, but you, Lord, you're so wise. And that using the weak, we don't get caught up in our own pride and we don't get caught up in our own flesh and our worldly means, but we have a dependence on you and that's where it should be. And Lord, I pray for anyone here, Lord, who hasn't accepted you as their Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that they would. As you stand at the door and knock, that they would open that door to their life. In Jesus' name, amen.